Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show. And as always, hey, thank you to you and you and you who have been doing such yeoman work in uh, promoting the show. I really appreciate uh, every time I see the show grows and the number of downloads increases, I get a jolt of enjoyment. And for that, I thank you very much indeed. Those of you who have been uh, passing it around, telling people about it, promoting it, advocating it, and uh, every now and then I see that actually happening. So that's wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Um, you know, the uh, the reason that people invest, uh, other than institutional investing, uh, you know, many times people have money they don't want to sitting in a bank, so they'll put it in a, a big fund or a name uh, organization, and, and that's understandable. But uh, talking about venture capital and private equity investing and uh, and angel investing that is always done on the basis of the people not the not the project so somebody who has no track record has no long-term relationships has not built up a reputation of of trust and goodness he can come with the most compelling story in the world he can come with the most amazing piece of software or the most amazing product or the most amazing service and if he uh, and and if he has trouble finding backers the reason will be simply because he has not yet established uh, those connections those relationships on the other hand there are other people who have a reputation for doing exactly what they say they're going to do. They have a reputation of integrity. And those people will find that uh, backers will come to them and say, look, I don't know what you're next going to do, but count me in. I'd like to be in on the ground floor with whatever you're doing next. And you might say to them, well, don't you want to know what my next business is going to be? And most people say, no, I don't really care. Um, I'm investing in you. And, and that's one of the reasons that any kind of business development program that focuses on things you have to do is really only telling you half the story. The other half of the story, and by far and away the most important half, the, the half that should come first, is a program that tells you what you should become. In other words, the changes that you need to bring about in yourself. And this is really uh, one of the reasons that uh, um, business and marriage are so closely related, in that um, when a, a man says to me, you know, I, I've been trying to get married for years. I mean, and somebody just recently uh, spoke to me and was saying, I, I'm just not doing very well at this. I've been trying for 10 years. Uh, I really do want to get married. And uh, I'd say, look, before you go any further, let me just tell you what it's not caused by. Your failure to get married is not because you have not yet met the right girl. Please believe me on that. Unless you are one of 0.00075% of the population, the reason that you are not married yet is not because you haven't found the right woman. It's because you have not yet become the right man. 
and uh, and that's a very real thing. You know, it's very few women are going to marry somebody because of the things he knows or because of the things he says. A smart woman marries a man because of what he is. And uh, similarly, in uh, Judeo-Christian Bible-based religious thinking, um, it's it's not a case of trying to fool God by saying certain things or by doing certain things. Um, there's an issue of integrity, that everything you say and do should be a natural and organic outcome of who you are, the kind of person you actually are. And that really is the, the essence of business itself. It's not an accident that in marriage, generally speaking, marriage improves people. Now, there are exceptions, but in general, uh, the idea of having to be, I'm speaking mostly about men here, men get improved by marriage. Uh, I think women do too, but in a completely different way. Men get improved by marriage because for the first time, they really care about somebody else's feelings. Um, you know, as, uh, as, as I grew up through my uh, childhood and my youth and my adolescence, I, I must say, I don't think I ever really knew what it was to deeply and passionately care about someone else's feelings. I was probably a horrible and repugnant little boy. And uh, it wasn't really until I began to understand girls and I began meeting young women that all of a sudden I found this huge change taking place in me. Um, I started saying things like, where would you like to go? Uh, what would you like to eat? And I thought, this is really interesting. I don't think in my whole life I've ever asked anybody what they care about. And all of a sudden it was this great gift of male-female relationship dynamics that the good Lord gave us, uh, which made me start caring about how somebody else thought. And then this overflows, of course, into other parts of life as well. When you have children, you really start caring about other people. And all of these things make you a better man than you were before, right? As a, as a child, did I really care if I was aggravating my parents? Did I really care if I was keeping him awake, awake at night and worrying about things I was doing or not doing? I mean, I know that happened, but it wasn't until I began to understand, well, I'm not going to say I understood girls, but I began to be aware of girls, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, that I suddenly thought to myself, you know what? Caring about what other people feel is a mark of maturity. Caring about what other people feel means you are becoming a better human being. And, uh, and, and so marriage does that for guys. Religion can do that and should do that for guys as well too, right? Because all of a sudden, when I realize that in the Lord's language, the Hebrew word for fear of God is the same as the word of seeing God, uh, I then understand, hey, this is a real thing. Um, I'm, I'm being watched. I am accountable to a greater being which has to change the way I behave. And that's a good and wonderful and positive thing. Business does exactly the same thing, right? What happens is you start caring about your customers. This is a good thing. Don't make the mistake of, of tarnishing your 
uh, your your action in your own mind by saying, oh, well, it's nothing really because I'm doing it selfishly. I'm only doing it for the profit. I'm only doing it to close the sale. Uh, this is a completely wrong and distorted way of thinking. The fact is that how we behave is much more important than the motivation. This is something I've discussed in many other previous shows. And uh, and if, if you need in your own development to get greater clarity on this, please go back and review earlier shows. But you have to get clear on this, that uh, the taking care of a customer because your initial concern is you want to close the sale, that's fine. It's good. That makes you a better person because you are now caring about somebody else. Caring about your employees. Well, because I don't want them to leave me and leave me in the lurch. I need my employee. It doesn't matter. Um, The action of being nice to your employees, the action of being considerate towards your employees, even though You might say, well, there's an ulterior motive. I'm only doing this. That's fine. You are still being turned into a superior person through that process. And you won't be surprised as time goes by to find yourself becoming more sensitive and more considerate to other people, even though when you first started doing it, there was an ulterior motive involved. So do not shortchange yourself. When you find that you are being nice to your wife, and then you catch yourself and you say, well, I'm only doing it for an ulterior motive. It doesn't matter. That's still a good thing you're doing. You're being nice to a customer because you want to close the sale. It doesn't matter why you're doing it. The action of being good and thoughtful and honest and caring towards a customer, it's called good customer service. That's a good thing. And uh, and whether it's taking care of vendors or, or clients or or employees business makes you a better person. That's a good thing. Um, Going, well, I'm not going to compare it with going into politics. Let's just say when you are in the business of making money, you are automatically in an environment that teaches you, trains you, encourages you, and incentivizes you to be good to other people. You know, often at, at events, people introduce me to uh, their youngsters. Very often, uh, people bring their uh, children, you know, um, teenagers, adolescents. They bring them along because they believe at some of these conferences I find myself speaking at, uh, the children will benefit. And I think they do. But I very often find myself asking these children, what sort of business are you in? And I get my comeuppance every now and then because uh, every now and then, a, a you know, a, a 19-year-old or a 17-year-old or, or just as happened recently, uh, she looked about 15 years old, came right back at me and told me exactly the business that they're in, which I love. But the reason I always ask is because I believe that if your child is in any activity that um, that that makes money, I don't care whether it's babysitting on a regular basis or 
or raking up leaves or mowing people's lawns or helping them with computer issues, which, by the way, great job for young people because folks above a certain age really need help on almost anything online having to do with the technology, phones, computers, and everything else. But I, I, I've explained that if your child is is also in the process of making money, don't be surprised if they become nicer to you and to their siblings as well. Because the process of making money teaches you and trains you and incentivizes you to learn how wonderful it is to be considerate of other people. And it's very, very difficult. There's no question about it, particularly when you're a young person. Um, there is an inbuilt resistance that you have towards going out of your way for other people, and particularly people in your family. And, and this is something I remember very clearly from when I was a teenager, and I remember uh, talking to many, many other people over the years in exactly the same way. Everybody experiences this uh, inbuilt resistance towards their own family and their their parents and their own siblings, and so uh, I, for instance, remember the um, the fact that it was much easier for me to be nice to outsiders than it was to my own parents. Right, um, my own son. I had a conversation with him about this when he was a teenager, and uh, and I think that helped him realize that. Whenever he was with other people, they loved him. He was so good and helpful and so kind. Whenever whenever he was at home, he used to lose his temper. He used to get angry with his parents, with uh, Susan Lappin and me. He used to get angry with uh, his um, his siblings. And at, at a certain point in his early teenage years, he understood this, and he just decided to stop. And I must tell you, it was a most remarkable display of willpower for a young person as uh, Susan and I watched our son just completely change. He forced himself to stop doing that to, to us and to his siblings, and he sure and he did, and it was an, uh, an amazing, amazing thing to watch. So uh, whether it's marriage or whether it's being in business or whether it is embracing a good religion, uh, don't be surprised if all of these activities turn you into a better human being. Um, I mentioned some of this just because we've had some interesting Ask the Rabbi questions recently uh, that that are answered along these lines, and I I didn't think I would be able to give a full enough answer in our Ask the Rabbi column on our website. But what I will tell you in response to a number of inquiries we've had lately, I think a whole lot of people are not aware that we collected a hundred of the best Ask the Rabbi questions along with the answers, and we published them into a book called Dear Rabbi and Susan. And uh, this, by the way, is available um, at a terrific price. I always compare it to the price of a cup of coffee, and this is absolutely true. Uh, if you went on, if you're a Kindle person, you would find Dear Rabbi and Susan available for another week or two uh, at literally the price of a uh, 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 that you can easily spend for a cup of coffee. So um, I mention this because the price is changing for uh, various economic and logistical reasons soon. But it's called Dear Rabbi and Susan. 
Uh, you can also get it in hard co- in in, um, in in hard copy and paper at the website rabbidaniellappin.com, okay? Or you need a rabbi.com also works. But over at rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store section and read about this really, I think it's one of the funnest books we, and that is a word, by the way, funnest. Uh, I think it's one of the funnest books we've done, and um, you can read about it at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Navigate over to the store, look at the books, and you will be able to read about it, and I hope that you will avail yourself of that particular volume. Okay, uh, here is a speech I did for Kingdom Chamber of Commerce, a very uh, lovely organization um, in out of New Jersey, as it happens, and uh, I spoke for them. I, I spoke for them a few times. I really enjoy this group, and uh, it's headed by a lovely lady whose name is Angela, and she um, she invited me. This was um, uh, early 2018, I believe it was, and uh, I have kept this as as something I wanted to share with you. I was just waiting for a good time to do so, and I think today is the day. So here goes, and I hope you enjoy it very much. David, David just came up. Where are you? There. Thanks a lot, pal. You've ruined my speech. (laughs) What else is there left for me to do? I listened to you giving an outstanding summary of the first chapter of the book. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess I'll just come up, I'll tell a few jokes, sing a song, and go home. I mean, that's, uh, I'm done. He did a great job. This is a very, very stimulating uh, occasion. And as Angela said... Excuse me, sir. Of course. Oh, I'm so sorry. As Angela said... Uh, I really did two years ago. I was so excited by what I saw and so much wanted to be a part of it that I said, Gosh, you know, if you make it to 13, uh, we Jews call that a bar mitzvah and I'd love to be back here for that. And sure enough, and I explained a little bit about last night about how uh, when you make it to 13, as a, we don't even recognize a young man as part of his people till we get to 13. 13 means you're on the road. It's going to be okay. And, uh, and that's what we do for, uh, for bar mitzvahs. Uh, why don't we have a similar ceremony for girls? Is it because Judaism is a patriarchal religion that hates women? Well, let's hope not, because I have six daughters. <laughs> so that would be a little bit of a problem. No, it's not that at all. Um, it's that a bar mitzvah is a very serious occasion. It's not just a party. It is a time to set your foot onto the road of the rest of your life. It is the point at which a young man switches from being a teenage barbarian into a productive and creative man. The reason we don't need a similar ceremony for girls is because little girls become young ladies all by themselves. Little boys, if nothing is done, if nothing boosts them into manhood, they become 40-year-old adolescents. And I'm sure you all know some as do I. 
I am, of course. How many of you uh, were here two years ago and heard me then? Great. Uh, I just want you to know that it is true, if you've heard rumors, it is true that I was the third or fourth choice for this speaking slot, which I don't mind at all. It's, it's just fine. Uh, the very first choice was Donald Trump. <laughs> Uh, that was the original plan. Like a year ago when this was being planned, Angela says, Donald Trump, why? Because the fact is, Donald Trump did inherit $40 million, but he turned it into $4 billion. Now that's not easy. Not everybody can do that. A lot more people lose money than make money. So he, um, he was choice number one. Turns out he's otherwise occupied. Uh, choice number two was Bill Gates, right? richest guy in the world, creator of Microsoft. It would absolutely have been fascinating to have heard him, so I'm sorry about that. But um, I'm choice number three. And yet, the truth is that Angela knew what she was doing because I'm actually more useful to you than choices number one or two. I'm not as entertaining. I'm not as brilliant, but I am more useful. Because Donald Trump would be really useful for all of you whose fathers left you $40 million. He would be a very good guide on how to convert that into even more. Bill Gates would be an excellent guide for those of you whose mothers serve on the board of IBM, and whose fathers are extremely influential attorneys, and if you were born into the cusp of the computer and internet revolution. For all of you in that category, Bill Gates would be more useful. But for everybody else, I'm more useful. Because what we're talking about is increasing your revenue, increasing your income. Not talking about how to invest your money, that's a separate discussion. That requires a bunch of money to start with. I'm not talking about reducing debt. That's very important. And there are great guys like uh, Dave Ramsey who help people get out of debt. But I'm talking about increasing revenue. And here's the great thing about it. Everybody knows. <laughs> I know people very often say, to, to Christian groups. Yeah, what are you doing inviting a rabbi? What are you, what's that all about? Well, there's a very good reason for that. And that is because anybody with eyes in their head knows that Jews are disproportionately good with business. <laughs> Jews are disproportionately good at making money. Now, a lot of people get uncomfortable about that. They think it sounds like bigotry. It sounds like uh, uh, anti-Semitic, like what are you saying? To me, it's a badge of pride. I'm very proud to be part of a group of people that are disproportionately successful with money. It doesn't mean there are no poor Jews, of course there are. But what it does mean is that a disproportionate number of Jews, not only in the United States of America but around the world, not only in 2017 but in every generation and every year, Jews have been disproportionately good with money. And the reasons? Well, a lot of people think that there are all kinds of mysterious reasons, but here's a shocking fact, and I have to tell you that uh, facts are stubborn things. 
Feel, facts don't care about your feelings. And the fact is that Jews are just like other people. With one exception. And that is they have access to ancient Jewish wisdom. That's the only difference. There is a message that God gave to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai. And that was placed in the hands of the Jewish people. And that message is in the language of Hebrew, in the Lord's language. And so like any translation, any translation is inadequate. In order to get to the essence of what it's all about, you've got to be able to penetrate the Hebrew. Now, I don't suggest that you take up your valuable time learning to read Hebrew. It's doable, but I have a better solution, and that is, why don't you just get yourself a rabbi? <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, while you're contemplating candidates and interviewing candidates, uh, I'd like to throw my hat into the ring. Um, have you considered me too? as uh, perhaps your rabbi. And um, what are some of these principles? Well, we're going to take a look at a few of them in the time that we have available. And it doesn't matter whether I'm going to speak for half an hour, which is what I'm going to speak for, or whether I would speak for three hours. The bottom line is that I cannot possibly hand over to you in three hours all the permanent principles and all the timeless truths that have to do with making money. But I can tell you that if you look at the five books of Moses, it is packed full of information about money. Right? In a way that the New Testament is not. The five books of Moses, you can barely turn pages before coming across words like silver or gold or money or lending or borrowing or charity giving. It's, it just doesn't stop. That's where the information is embedded. And it's embedded in the form of what I call permanent principles and timeless truths. What do I mean by that? Well, take for example bridges. I, I, I'm, I, I love bridges. I just find them absolutely fascinating and I, I love driving over them. I love driving under them. I like looking at them. Uh, bridges intrigue me. Now, if you look, for those of you who, who aren't familiar, uh, there's a wonderful old bridge, more than 100 years old, in New York called the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, built by a fantastic engineer called John Roebling, built with stone towers, and John Roebling made the steel cables that provide the suspension arc, and then the roadway is suspended from that. Uh, that bridge is entirely different from the Verrazano Bridge, which is built in the 1960s and crosses from, uh, from um, Long Island to Staten Island, to be precise. And if some, you know, if ordinarily people look at these two bridges, they'll say, you know, they're completely different, but they're not. The principles are the same. They are both suspension bridges. There are a lot of different kinds of bridges, but suspension bridges have towers at the end, cables arc downwards, and from those cables, uh, lines are uh, go down to carry the roadway and the fact is that from a principal point of view the principles that were used to build the Brooklyn Bridge more than 100 years ago are exactly the same principles that were used to build the Verrazano Bridge in 1960 same thing 
to the ordinary eye, you look at them and you say, two completely separate bridges. But as soon as you know the background, you say, oh, they're basically the same thing. We can write up the numbers, the mathematical equations for the two bridges, they're exactly the same. On the surface of it, it looks different. The principles are unchanging. Business is like that as well. You look at one business, and it's a business that does uh, dry cleaning for people, and uh, another business supplies groceries, and a third business supplies software, and somebody says, oh man, how do you, this is all so very confusing, what do I do here? And the answer is, they're exactly the same. The principles apply in every single case. Now, it is not possible for any of us to have so much time and so much brain power to know everything there is to know about every single different kind of business. The good news is you don't. You only have to know the principles. And the principles are doable. Not in a half hour speech, not even in a one day seminar. But that's fine because we brought here to bless you the opportunity for you to invest in the entire package of ancient Jewish wisdom in the form of a collection of books and audio CDs that you can now take your time over. And many of these things have to be absorbed not only into the head but into the heart. What I mean by that is that uh, if, if I'm going to a dangerous country and I say to myself, you know what, uh, at the airport before I go, I'm going to pick up a book on unarmed combat, self-defense. In case I run into trouble, give me a slightly better chance. I don't know why you have to laugh at me like that. What's so impossible about me defending myself? And I pick up this book, I read through it on the airplane, I land in the uh, other place, and sure enough, would you believe it, very first night, I'm taking a late night walk, I'm walking down the road, an arm comes around my neck from behind, I feel a gun in my ribs, and somebody says, hand over everything. And I say, obviously, to him, I say, hold on a second. In my pocket, I've got my handbook on self-defense. <laughs> and I remember that attacks from the rear covered in chapter 17. Stop pushing. I need to look that up. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's not just about the knowledge, it's about moving it from the head to the heart. It has to become part of who you are. Because the way we sculpt our business lives is very often a consequence of how we interact with other people on the spur of the moment. And if you stop and say to yourself, now let's see, Rabbi Daniel Lappin covered that in which book was it? Uh, yeah, it was chapter 4. Uh, I think that's where it was. All this delay while this is going on in your mind, do you know how that comes across to the person you're talking to? You come across as dishonest. It comes across as you're trying to figure out what to say. This is one of the reasons that me personally, I don't care for politicians who use teleprompters. Because I want to see into the soul of the politician. I don't want to see what his staff wrote for him to say. I want to know what his heart says. I, want to, I may not like it, but at least I know what it is. That's why I love the very few handful of public figures who speak without a teleprompter. Because they may make mistakes, they'll give people an opportunity to mock them, and I don't care about any of that. What I care about is, 
I'm getting a glimpse into the soul. And that's how it is when something, when a, when a body of knowledge like ancient Jewish wisdom, the permanent principles of business move from your head, easy to get it in the head, moving it from there to the heart so as it becomes a natural part of you, now that's a lot more difficult. And that is why it's not possible for that to happen in an hour or half an hour or a day. That has to take not only several weeks, but for most of us, I would say two to three months in total. And so this is a great time to be planning a redesigned financial destiny for 2018. If we were to use November and December to master these principles, wrap ourselves around them, take them from our head to our heart, because transforming financial destiny is not just learning new things, it's becoming a new person. It's becoming entirely different. Now, um, Angela and Paul uh, discussed with me the fact that the key, the theme that they wanted to build this conference about was how to thrive in change. And I love that. I thought that was really helpful, really useful, because everybody is dealing with change all the time, right? Change happens. Last night, remember I told you about uh, a list of companies, and I, I told you I'd selected a group of companies, uh, Macy's, uh, American Apparel, The Gap, um, Radio Shack, Sears, Staples, uh, Sports Authority, um, uh, Walmart, Target, a whole bunch of these companies, and I, I showed you how they had had to close over 1,500 stores in the last three years. That's, that's huge. This is at a time when the population of America is going up. The amount of money that is being spent on all of these goods that are sold by Macy's and American Apparel and Gap and, and, and Kmart and Sears and everywhere, it's all going up. So why are they closing stores? Because of the internet. E-commerce. But wait a second, don't you think that Macy's and American Apparel and Walmart and Target and Staples and Radio Shack, these are companies that have thousands of stores. Walmart has 4,601 stores in America. That's a lot of stores. Don't you think companies like that can afford the very best brains there are out there? And yet, they stumbled badly because they didn't understand the, the, the change they did not hear the soft footsteps of the approaching change. Lots of other people did. But these giants of commerce, these people being paid stupendous salaries and enormous stock options, blew it. And some of the companies I've listed are on the way to bankruptcy. Some are already off out of the picture. Sears hasn't got long to live. Radio Shack is gone. Staples is in trouble. A lot of these companies were really harmed because the, the leadership in those companies failed to hear the footsteps of approaching events. And so we're going to talk now about two aspects of how to cope with change. And these two aspects of how to cope with change are perhaps the, the most useful things I can give you to take away in the few moments that we have available this morning. The two 
aspects are number one, and um, and I know that Angela would say write this down, but I'll leave I'll leave that to you. Here is number one: even scary change is just another word for opportunity. And principle number two is that it's not good enough to only know how to cope with change, we also have to learn how to anticipate change and how to exploit it. And so let's start off with understanding change. Here's the very simple inescapable fact. Well, you may not be happy with it, but we all go through a maturing in life where we acknowledge that there are certain things that that's just the way they are and you now need to adapt to it. Children particularly, you give them two choices and they don't want either one, right? Mature means you get to a point where you can accept the lesser of two bad choices. Change is inevitable. You cannot get away from it. Change happens all the time. Change is a part of life. The only thing that doesn't change is a dead person. A dead person is at that point what he is, never going to change again. But change is a part of life. Everything changes. The weather changes, economic circumstances change, and guess what? Praise the Lord, so do we. That's a good thing. Because when you think about it, what else doesn't change? Things that are dead and inert do not change. A marble, any mineral, doesn't change, right? You take marble out of a quarry, use it in a building, and the building gets erected, and the building stands for 50 years, and people just love the beautiful lobby done up in marble, and then it's time to demolish the building and replace it with a more up-to-date building. Because things change, right? Because when they built that building, it was before the time of elevators. So they made the building four stories tall. But now that same spot in the large city is capable of having a building of 40 or 50 stories high. Because we now have elevators. That was an enormous change. Do you remember where the cheapest apartments were? In those days, you can't remember because none of you are old enough, neither am I. But... The cheapest apartments were on which floor? The very top, because you had to walk all the way up. Those were the cheapest apartments. You'll read it in books, in books from the, um, from the early 1900s or the late 1800s. You'll re read books about how starving people lived in the garret, the attic right up on top. Because you could rent that for very little. You know why? Because you had to climb up. Four, five, six flights of stairs to get there. Comes the elevator, enormous change. And what do we call that top floor that used to be occupied by the store? The penthouse! Everything has changed. Change is inevitable. We just have to accept that. And then we have to learn how to cope with it. How do we cope with change? Well, step number one is, it's again, it's something that... Um, there's certain um, points in my books that I come to again and again and again. Uh, Angela quotes very often that we must all be obsessively preoccupied with the needs of other people. That's the basis of ancient Jewish wisdom on business. Try and serve other people. 
Jews never pray, oh please God, please give me another $600 this month so I can make the rent. No, we, we never do that. We do pray and we say, please God, open my eyes so I can see more of your children that I could serve and the money will come by itself, I'm not worried. And so, we understand, we understand these principles and they guide us and they teach us. Change is absolutely inevitable. The more uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, we must be being obsessively preoccupied with the needs of other people is principle number one in business. Um, another one is that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. This is an important principle. If, uh, if it was Angela up here, she'd say, write it down. And um, what does that mean? It means that as long as you are anchored to absolutely firm bedrock, then you can manage to deal with change. But if you are not in any way anchored to the unchangeable realities of life, then every change that blows through your life blows you off course. We've always got to know what are the anchors, what are the unchangeables in our life, so as we can more effectively adapt to those things that do change. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, we might say, you know what, the unchangeable in my life is God. Right. Wrong. Because it's too vague. It's too vague. I can interpret that in almost any way I like. Uh, you know why I've got to uh, work seven days a week and uh, leave my family? Because God wants me to succeed. Well, now that's good. I'm putting God first, right? No. Not exactly. When you say God is my unchangeable, it's too vague. It sounds nice, but business doesn't work on vagueness. Business works on hardcore realities. And so I'm perfectly willing to say, you know what's an unchangeable with me? My commitment to God, which translates into some very specific things. Maybe not as many specific things as I wish or as I like or as I should, but it translates into some specific things. I'll give you one example. One example is, I do not work seven days a week. I will work happily on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I will even work happily on Sunday because my Sabbath is Saturday. But when it comes to sunset this evening, you could literally pay me anything. And it's not going to help. I just, I know already, this is my unchangeable. I don't work on the Lord's Day. Exodus chapter 26 days shalt thou work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. It's as simple as that. And so that's one of the reasons, by the way, that pretty soon after I, I finish talking to you this morning, uh, Susan and I, in the next hour or so, are going to have to get in the car, drive back home, because one thing we know for sure, and that is that once the sun sinks below the western horizon, you will not find us in the car, you will not find us online, you won't find us on Facebook, you won't find us on our telephones. We are absolutely unreachable until the sun goes down and the stars come out on Saturday night. That is an unchangeable reality. Uh, another unchangeable, you might say, well, you know what, my family comes first. You might say that, right? How, is that good? No! Because it doesn't mean anything. 
That way, you might go on a two-month business trip, abandoning your wife and children, and you say, hey, I'm only doing this for my family. My family comes first. That's not correct. You need to nail down hardcore realities. And so, uh, my wife and I have an arrangement and an agreement of what the maximum number of nights a month that we will be apart. That's all. And therefore, no matter what the opportunity is, if it requires me to be away from home, away from my wife, away from my children, not fulfilling my role as husband and father, I'm sorry, it's not doable. Can't do it. Unchangeables have to be hardcore, real things that are true anchors in your life. True anchors. Uh, you know, I'm a... I'm a a boating enthusiast for years. Our family has had its vacation, you know, boating around in small boats. And one of the most vital pieces of safety equipment is an anchor. And what happens is, if you find yourself out of control, you lose your engine, whatever it is, the wind is blowing you towards a dangerous rocky shore, all you do is you lower your anchor, and when it reaches the bottom, an anchor is shaped like a hook, it digs in to sand or mud or even rocks, and it holds on, and then your boat isn't going to be blown onto the, into dangerous areas and you now have time to figure out how am I going to fix the motor, whatever, I'm call for help, whatever you're going to do. But that anchor is attached to the boat with thick chain, iron chain. It's not attached with thread or cotton. It doesn't do any good. Unchangeables have to be locked in, solid, with iron chain. Absolutely reliable. And so, that is a, uh, it's just a crucial principle in understanding what the unchangeables are. I'll give you an, another example. Another unchangeable is that I'm not interested in eyeballs to my website. I'm not interested in revenue. I'm interested in profit. You have to be making a profit. And you cannot have anybody guide you and say to you, hey, you know what, I mean, you know, your cash flow is horrible. By the way, cash flow statement, one of the most important pages in a financial, a set of financial statements. A lot of people overlook that cash flow statement. Cash is king. You, you've got to have a cash flow statement and you've got to make sure that you are creating profit. Revenue is all very well. Eyeballs is wonderful. Um, everything is great, but nothing is as great as actually having a profit. Now, you know, it's, it's people say, well, you know, profit is really important. No, it's the most important thing. We're talking about a business. You don't have a business if you're not making a profit. It's very simple. So, so that's again, it's unchangeable. It's not going to happen that if I meet you again in six months' time and you say to me, by the way, Rabbi Lappin, how do you feel about profit? It's really not going to happen that I'll say to you, well, in the last six months I've come to realize, you know what, profit's overrated. <laughs> you don't have to worry so much about profit. What's the, the really important thing is happy employees. <laughs> or somebody, you know what the most important thing in our business is? Um, we absolutely focus first on making sure that there is no um, uh, maltreatment of women, that men do not speak disrespectful. It's very important, but it isn't ahead of profit. Because without profit, no, nothing else is there. 
So that's, that's another example of dealing with change you, is fine. And we have to deal with change as long as we also are focused on those things that are really absolutely unshakable, our anchors to reality. Uh, once, our once we're anchored to reality, we don't have to worry. Uh, you know, does anybody ever, anyone here remember a camera called Leica? Okay, you have to be a real camera enthusiast to know about Leica. Leica um, started business early in the 20th century. Uh, they introduced 35mm photography. I want to tell you something. Throughout my youth, I lusted. <laughs> For women? No. For a Leica. You might think there was something wrong with me, but that's only because you've never held a Leica. It was like, it, a Leica was a, like a Swiss watch, only better. When you pressed the shutter release on a Leica, you could hear thousands of mechanical parts working smoothly together. And when you advanced the film with your thumb, oh, you'd have to know what I'm talking about. Leica was the ultimate camera. And it was totally out of my reach because back in the 1960s and 70s, it used to then cost two grand, which was ridiculous for a camera, right? Because you could buy a perfectly good camera back then for $30. Yeah. Leica used to, I remember the, 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 the M3 at that point, $1,700. Okay, very nice. Why is it that only one or two people raise their hands when I ask you about Leica? It's very simple. It's because right now, if you went to every photographic store within 30 miles of here, you won't see a single Leica. You know why? Because in the late 1990s, early uh, 20s, um, Leica discovered that there are a few people looking around at this idea of getting rid of film and using an electronic photograph. And they laughed. They said, that's ridiculous. When you are locked into your own vision, you get blinded. The Bible says, bribery blinds the eyes of the wise. One form of bribery is emotional, when you're emotionally involved. Hey, we're the best camera in the whole world. We've been making 35mm cameras, film cameras. I mean, n film manufacturers don't even introduce a new film until they speak to us here at Leica. Obviously, they laughed at what was going on. As, by the way, Kodak was the same thing. Kodak was churning out millions of feet of film, completely oblivious to the fact that down the road, somebody was showing how to take pictures with electronics that do not use film. Today, we all carry a camera in our phones. It's mind-boggling. But if you could talk to a 200-year-old photographer, a 100-year-old nah, photographer, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to relate to the changes that have happened in his lifetime. In reality, it's even less than 100 years. But to be open to change, sometimes the best thing is to use a specialist. Not make all decisions yourself. Use somebody else. Go to somebody else. Offer to pay them for their time. And say, I need to run something by you. I want your judgment on something. 
And then lay out what you're thinking, lay out your concerns about what you think you see coming down the road, things that could imperil your business, or alternatively, things that could give your business huge new opportunities. All of that, you know, use other people. It is not worthwhile trying to do everything yourself. And that's one of the reasons that at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob gave the blessing to all his sons. These were going to be the future tribes of Israel, right? How many verses does he take? More than 30 verses. Why? You know how I'd have written it? If it was my job to write the Bible, I would have said, Jacob called his sons together. He says, boys, you've all been big pains in the neck. Goodbye. I'm going home to the Lord. I hope he blesses you. Good luck. I'm gone. One verse. You know how much ink I would have saved? And by the way, in case you think this was an accident, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses blesses all the tribes when he's about to die. You know what I would have said? Hey, people of Israel, I've led you through the desert these past 40 years, and oi, have you been terrible. I'm going home to the Lord. I don't know how Joshua's going to deal with you, but I wish him luck. God bless, I'm out of here. One verse. Moses takes 30 verses. Why? Because of this principle of specialization. Moses wanted the tribes to need one another, to use one another. He didn't want them all to have the same blessing. He wanted them all to develop their own necessary skills. Because if everybody can do everything for themselves, you and me, we all starve to death. Because nobody needs you. The only way they need your services, and that's why I speak about being obsessively preoccupied with the needs of other people, if they don't have needs, they don't need you. Specialization is wonderful. It means we all get exceptionally good at the best way we have for serving God's other children. And everything else we have other people do for us. Please don't do your taxes by yourself. Please don't do your taxes by yourself. You are going to overpay. I absolutely promise you that. Somebody who does nothing but preparing tax returns day and night, 24-7, 365 days a year, that's the person you want doing your taxes. And it'll save you more money than, than, you, than it costs. That's how it works. You can't go wrong with that. Specialization is beautiful. Use it use other people. It frees you up to do the things that you do best in serving others. And so a principle number one in dealing with change is being locked in to the unchangeable things in your life, the things that absolutely anchor you to reality. And that way you can be open to sense the arrival of change and to feel the approaching change. Have you ever wondered why it is that you so often think of things in the shower? Right? I, I'm still shopping for a waterproof notepad because I want to remember what I, I mean, I have great ideas in the shower. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the white noise of the shower drowns out everything else. You don't hear any other noise. Number two, you're on autopilot, right? Have you ever wondered, Dan, wait a second, you know, did I do my elbow already? It's all automatic, right? You just, you, everybody showers themselves in the same exact way every single week unless they shower more regularly but um, whatever it is 
when you're in that mode of no disturbance, nobody's going to walk in on you, you don't have other noise, you don't have your phone going on there, that's the time when you're open to ideas. It's also the time when you hear the footsteps of approaching events. And so you can create a virtual shower on a regular basis. Yeah, for me it's easy because I have the Sabbath, no noise. And I have times on the Sabbath where I have the opportunity to just be quiet and let the universe speak to me and let me sense what's coming down the road and make, make sure that that becomes part of my planning for the future. A virtual shower just means on a regular basis you seclude yourself, no interruptions, no noise, no phone, no nothing, and just let yourself think. And just be open to the feelings that flood through you at that time. Very helpful and very, very useful. Look, these are, these are just a few of the principles we allowed. And let me just tell you what we've got there, because we do have to leave soon, so if we're going to be able to bless you with some of the stuff, we need to do it fairly quickly. Um, what we have, particularly for people who are pastors or in a leadership position and who really need not just the principles, but they also need the background to the principles so that they can teach not just the principles, but the whole background to the principle. Uh, what you want is something we call our library pack. Now, if all you need is just the financial principles, then you want something called the income abundance set. And the income abundance set would be included in the library. So if you get the library pack, you get everything, including income abundance. If you just go for income abundance set, which is fine, then you just get the financial information, which is not a just. It's life-changing because it's all the principles you need to utterly transform how you conduct business. It is all focused on one thing, increasing income, increasing your revenue. That's what it's about. And the Income Abundance Set is made up of two books, Business Secrets from the Bible and Thou Shall Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money. It includes audio programs which cover the topics you need to hear again and again. And it's great because you can listen to those things while you're at the gym, while you're exercising, while you're out walking, um, when you're commuting and you're on a bus or a plane or a train or whatever it is you're on. No problem. These are things you can use the time in order to actually absorb these principles and move them not just from into your head but also from the head to the heart. And so those are the two principles and we're out of time now but um, at least we've had a little bit of a glimpse at these two ideas which is that uh, given that change is not only inevitable but the way I explained last night it's a, um, it's, it's a metaphor for life. Change means you're alive. Change is a good thing. Change is movement. Change is dance. Change is vitality and vibrancy. Change is music. Right? A constant hum isn't music. It's annoying. But when the notes change into a tune, change is all about life. And the great thing about being in business, it's a wonderful way to make a living whether you're a sales professional, whether you're providing goods, whether you're providing a service, being in business is fantastic because you are right there at the core of existence. You are living passionately to the full. That's what business is. That's why things change constantly in business. And that's why Macy's and uh, American Apparel and The Gap and everybody else, well, the reason that, because they stopped embracing change. We don't just accept change. We reach out and embrace it. 
because change is what makes it possible to grow. Remember I told you marble in that building, talking about the marble? When they take down that building to build a big new building, you know what they do with the marble? They carefully remove it and they reuse it in the new building. Because the marble doesn't change, right? How about a flower? You know, animal, vegetable, mineral, right? Let's start at the mineral level. Marble doesn't change. Concrete doesn't change. It'll be tomorrow what it is today. How about a flower? I pick a flower, put it in my lapel, and oh, I look so cool, this is terrific. How do I look tomorrow? Well, that flower is looking very droopy. By the third day, that flower is dead, and people are looking at me weird. <laughs> What's that about? Uh, because things that are one level up from mineral, namely vegetables, they change. How about animals? They change even more. Right? A puppy dog? He's cute and lovely and he looks at you with those big puppy eyes, but uh, nine months down the road he could be a mangy cur snarling at people. Depends how he's, how he's raised, a lot, lot like kids. And so, um, uh, a cow, a baby calf is helpless, but two years down the road that baby calf has become a cow delivering gallons and gallons of milk and butter every day. Animals change all the time, but not nearly as much as people change. I know I sure wouldn't want to be judged by the way I was five years ago or ten years ago, and that's true for all of us. We all try and improve. We all try and grow. We embrace change. It's a part of who we are. It's, it's so wonderful and so important. We've got to also recognize that it's a crucial part of business too, okay? Change is an inevitable part of life. It's a crucial part of business. Recognizing it, embracing it, feeling it, adapting to it, forecasting it. All the ways we save our businesses from going downhill and we acquire the fuel to propel them all the way up to the very top. Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much the opportunity of partnering with all of you in your success at this fantastic conference. I love the idea of being able to hand over to you those permanent principles that each and every one of you can apply in your own business, in your own way, to your own strategies, and to your own success. The principles you can absolutely count on, like generations of Jews have done to very good effect, they are now not just for Jews, they are available for you as well. If any of you want me to sign the books that you purchase, uh, I'll, I would be honored to do that. Even, I can't guarantee it raises their value. It might lower their value. But, um, but if it gives me an opportunity to shake you by the hand and personally wish you a 2018 of huge success, I would be delighted. Thanks so much. God bless. Okay, there it was, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. You can probably hear, I hope you can hear, I think you probably can hear in, uh, in these speeches how much I enjoy doing them. Uh, you, you can sort of tell the ebullience I feel as I have the opportunity to impart ancient Jewish wisdom uh, to my audience. And that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, whenever... 
we are invited to speak to a church or a synagogue or a business group uh, around the country and, and often outside the country, if the schedule allows it and the logistics work out, I almost never turn them down. Um, it's it's something I enjoy. Now, it is a bit of a problem because it obviously takes time away from uh, work I should be doing on finishing off my next book, which just needs a little bit more work to be done, and that is the money and marriage book, but uh, I've got to try and juggle all the time and try and make everything work. So uh, that is, oh, one more thing i got to tell you. Last week, last week I started off the show and telling you about this beautiful charity out of Ghana that is worried about the fact that many Californian communities are having water shortages and uh, they've, they're sending teams to help dig well. Well, I, as, as I'm sure pretty much everybody realized, uh, that was just a total um, joke and obviously there is absolutely no such charity yet, although being as California is rapidly moving to third world status and Ghana is rapidly moving to first world status, um, it, uh, it sort of seemed to me kind of appropriate that a, uh, a developing, exciting, uh, working country like Ghana should take pity on their third world cousins in California and try to help them out. Anyway, I only mention this because I, I actually did receive a few emails from people asking for more details. They wanted to contribute to the charity, which... Um, which only goes to show what wonderful people listen to this show, that even a charity to help Californians, uh, there were some actually some people willing to help and support. So God bless you. Thank you. But uh, not needed. There actually is no such charity. And uh, I did disclose that at the end of the show, but sometimes I guess some people don't go all the way to the end. I don't know why, but that seems to be something that did happen. Um, that's it. Until next week, I want to wish you good times with your faith, your family, your finances, and your friendships, because activities in all those areas, as I started off today's show telling you, activities in all those areas tend to make you a better person. Your connection with God, your connection with your family, your connection with your friends, and yes, your connection with your money and your process of making money, all of these things make us better people. So have a wonderful week in all of those things. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.